I, I don't want to keep having the same conversations, you know, the same interview that says, what is it, how do you feel being a black woman in the water? And I have to tell you, it feels the same way as a white woman in the water. It's wet and it's cold sometimes, and sometimes it's warm, but where we are now doesn't allow us to do that. We have to be identified and we have to know where we are and we have to be very conscious going into the future on how we do things. Rhonda Harper is the founder of Black Girl Surf, an organization that empowers women and girls to compete in professional surfing. Rhonda herself has been surfing since the 1980s and has always felt a lack of visibility for Black women in professional surfing. Through her work with Black Girl Surf, she has led the way in recruiting, training, and mentoring aspiring surfers from the shores of California to Senegal. In 2014, Rhonda connected with the surfer Haju Sam, who will be the first Senegalese woman to compete in the Olympics for surfing later this year in Tokyo. For today's episode, she is connecting with us from Cape Town, South Africa, where she is continuing to spread her knowledge and love of surfing. Welcome to Your Attention, Please, the companion podcast to the Hulu series of the same name that introduces us to present-day makers of Black history. I'm Kimberly Drew, curator, writer, and co-editor of the Black Futures Anthology. Today, Rhonda Harper talks to us about the spirituality of the water and when to treat yourself. Hello, Rhonda. Well, hello. How are you? I am very good, and I am so excited to sit with you and to learn with you and from you today. I have to say, before we get started, revisiting your segment made me so happy that at least here in New York, the seasons are changing because I cannot wait to get back on the water. That's it. That's how you have to do it. That's that's what I'm always hoping, that I inspire somebody to get back in the water. I don't care if it's one person or a hundred. Just, just get back in the water. I love that. So I really want to start today's conversation specifically talking about your segment on Hulu. One of my favorite things about the segment was the incredible sound design. When I'm in Senegal, the entire village comes out to greet you and make sure that you're okay. I can breathe here. You could hear the water. You could see these beautiful vistas and scenes of where you were shooting. And then you could hear singing. Like, Talk to me a bit about some of the senses that come up in relationship to the segment and then also in relationship to your work. 
Okay, so this segment, it was pretty much my work. And so I'm always around sound, whether it's the crashing of the waves or the girls giggling or, you know, Jerusalem playing because now they're doing the new dance move. I mean, there's always some time, there's some African tradition going on in the village. I was staying in a very small village, a fishing village called Ingor. And there was always something. The men would be praying at night and it's a song. There's always sounds. And I lived in a building at the top and it there's so many sounds in Senegal. There's so many sounds. It's weird because now I'm in South Africa and I don't have those sounds. You know, I have regular like street cars and it, there's no cars in Angor. So it's like, it, it's actually what we do in a day. Like it's, you know, it, it's not a, there's one part of it that is a fantasy, but it actually comes true. But most of that is we're touching and we're, we're engaged in and moving constantly throughout the day. It's weird when we get to sit down, then, then we feel like we're not doing, you know, and we were, we're actually relaxing. We're like, we're supposed to be doing something because we're in a constant state of motion and, and, and movement. It's just, it's beautiful. You mentioned a part of the segment that came to life. Can you tell me about which part that was and how it came to life? So when you're watching the segment, the first scenes that you see is you see me going to the cove, but you see these flashes of the girls in in their competition jerseys. Okay, so when we very first started our journey, it was to get girls into professional surfing. And then, you know, we added, you know, surf therapy and other things along the way. But the the, the original goal was to get girls, especially black girls in, in professional surfing, because we're the one that's missing. We're, we're the missing link. But that scene that you see in the beginning comes true. So that was a dreamscape. That's in my mind when I'm dreaming. Now I'm here in South Africa working with the WSL, which is World Surfing League, on my own contest for, for girls all over Africa. So we're starting out in South Africa with three contests that start in September. And then next year, I launched the full program, whereas the women's pro, the juniors pro, and the men's pro. So what I dreamed of, the dream was to have a surfing contest that showcase Black talent, Afro talent, Pan-Afro talent has now come in to fruition. This is an international contest. So even though we're starting in South Africa, you know, this thing is, is, is set to grow. And that was my ultimate, when, when, when Dorothy is talking about, because I always call myself the original Dorothy, right, from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> but when Dorothy is trying to find Oz, and she ends up with all of these different people that she's learning who she's who she is in real life. That was like my life, all these little stops that I had to go along the way to get to Oz. So Oz is usually what you had back home, right? So the original dream was to have this Pan-Afro surf contest professional where these guys are getting paid. They're registered with the WSL, which is our NFL. It's, it's just the exact same, but it's for surfing. And to have them and companies around the globe to start looking at Afro talent is that's the reason why you don't see it is because, you know, first of all, we weren't part of the original description of a surfer, right? So we were left out of that whole marketing thing. So now you have to create a whole, you know, literally create a whole community in order to be able to showcase your own talent. And that's exactly what happened. So when I say that beginning is the dream that actually comes into reality in the end. So a lot of this work that you're doing is through your organization, Black Girl Surf. Could you talk a little bit about what Black Girl Surf is doing right now? 
So what we're doing right now at this moment, we're in South Africa on three missions. One is to open up uh, a Black Girl Surf, and we have a uh, an event coming up with the community is completely involved with 43 girls from a township out by the airport. They knew we were coming in town. <laughs> they knew we were coming and, in and town. this is in Cape Town? This is in Cape Town. So as soon okay. as we got off the plane, we already had, you know, 43 registered girls for Black Girl Surf. So that event will go off. And it's an all-girls day, self-defense, you know, talking about gender, gender-based violence. We really try to work with the girls to, so like, really get into it. So that's the one That's one thing we're doing. So the Black Girl Surf is here in, in Cape Town now. Uh, number two is the WSL and working with them on opening and getting Africa Surf International, which is what we were talking about. All right. So that gets launched in September. Right. So we're here doing that work. And three is I'm probably going to move to Cape Town. <laughs> Look, I want an invitation to the Black Girl Surf Bri. I need that. That is off. That's, <laughs> we're going to do it tonight. So, I mean, it's, there'll definitely be one when you get here, for sure. Like, it, that's an open invitation. Now, I didn't realize, I mean, I did not realize that they bry like we do. Mm-hmm. All I'm waiting for is the, uh, what is that, uh, Frankie Beverly and the, you know, mm-hmm. and Maze <laughs> music. <laughs> Yeah, so that's all I'm waiting to hear. Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. every day there's a bride. And and I'm going to figure out how to use my bride because we have one outside. but And and everybody's like, you cannot move unless you have a bride. So, okay, cool. It took me a minute to figure out what it was. But for people that don't know, a bride is barbecue. (laughs) I have had so many daydreams of, like, a Durban moment. I'm like, I'm ready. Especially, too, because, like, climate-wise, they're, you know, Southern Hemisphere. And so, like, February, March, that's the spot to be. Uh Uh-huh. I'm like, ah. Um, I met my first black pro surfer. He's Jamaican. His name is Shama. Shama Beckford. I've known Shama since he was eight years old. He's with Hurley, too. We're both on the same brand. I love it. No, I, I, I mean, there's so much context in the history of, especially black sport, you know? Like, I think it's important to talk about in broad sweeps black sport because there's so many ways that we're invisibilized in these spaces that we do exist and have existed. And there's intergenerational relationships with whether we see it or not. Like in my family lineage, my dad is a huge ultimate Frisbee person. And like, of course, when you think about ultimate Frisbee, you think about like, white kids in the suburbs. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, my very black father was there with like <laughs> knee high socks on and like poom poom shorts throwing Frisbee. <laughs> And so there, there is so much texture that we miss um, when we skip over those stories and histories. It's, that's true. And, and, you know, my thing has always been to elevate Black stories in sports, especially water sports, because the biggest fallacy out there is that Black people don't swim. Black people don't want to get their hair wet. Black people don't want to do this. Black people don't anything that has to do with water. And I've been a water baby, you know, since I was four. So we're going on like, 49 years, whatever, something. <laughs> but, but that, I mean, that's who we've been. We've been taught not to embrace the water, our water connection. When we are from uh, coastal communities, like if you're in the United States, there's a 90% chance that your, your lineage comes from the West Coast of 
of, of Africa, which is West Africa, which is where we are. You have Bunce Island in, in Sierra Leone and Gori Island in, in Senegal, which we showed. But those were places that we were before we landed in the United States. And those are coastal. And this is what I say in every speech, every, every lecture that I do. It is arrogant for us to think that because surfing was considered a white, predominantly white sport, that people of color were not using it when they are coastal people, whether it's, it's the coast of Africa, whether it's the coast of South America. It's, it's, it's arrogant to think that, oh, it just came from one place. And then you look at the history books now, which I didn't know when I was younger. I always put surfing on, on Hawaii, right? That was the thing. It was Hawaii. That was what they were doing. But then you find out through history, as now the Internet has allowed us to do, you find out that they found surfing in, in Ghana and Peru before they even went to Hawaii. So then connecting. And then, you know, there was a, a, a black female, Carlotta Stewart, who was the first African-American female surfer, literally. And she was a, on a whaling ship and taught in, in Hawaii. She's huge. And nobody even knows if we don't start telling our stories, we're all going to be lost. Like, so the, the, the thing that we did with black girl surf is we gave that that nucleus where everybody could attach themselves to, then we find out, okay, there's somebody's, you know, the longboard champion of Russia is a black female. You don't know these things. You don't know that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We just think a shama, right? Because we see them. We think a shama, right. Mike February, and the people that they decide that they want to show us. So then how did you begin to foster this young talent among women surfers? How did you meet Haju? I know that you were trying to start your own contest to showcase African surfers, but maybe you had a hard time finding women to compete. We had one girl. The one girl was the first and only female surfer from Sierra Leone, and her name is Kia Ditu Kamara. If it hadn't been for KK, there would be no black girl surf. And we could not find a black girl anywhere that we could have a goal against KK, like compete against KK. So I said, okay. Let's stop looking at the associations and start looking at the surf camps because there's got to be black girls. I mean, it's Africa. Let's let's look at the surf camps to see if there's a girl somewhere in here that's teaching. At least we have two. We we look in the surf camps and in West Africa we see this one black girl walking through a surf camp with a surfboard. Don't know who she is. Don't don't even care. Just contact the surf camp and like, who's that girl? <laughs> They're like. What girl? I, you know, the black one holding a board. That's like, oh, that's how you saw. I said, do you have her contact information? So I was like, yeah, I have her Facebook. So they gave me her Facebook. First question, do you want to compete in a professional surf contest? No, no, no hello, how you doing? None of that. Don't even know she speak English, don't care. Like, do you, <laughs> you know, that's, that's how desperate we were getting because we were close to the contest day. We, we did not have a girl participant. The first thing she says is, yes, of course. So she had the dream that she wanted to be a pro surfer, but she was the first and only female surfer in her country. But then the contest gets shut down because of Ebola. For two years, the contest was just closed down. And uh, I said, well, Let's bring them to California and train them. And then, you know, once the world opens up back again, then we'll go back to Sierra Leone and we'll pick up the contest where we were. And everybody agreed and say, okay, we're all going to pitch in. We're all going to get these girls there. Well, Donald Trump gets elected and then there's a travel ban. 
<laughs> so, so now we can get Hajim out because the ambassador was still there. And KK couldn't come because there was no ambassador in Sierra Leone, right? And so Haji Sam gets on a plane. We pay for her to come out to California and stay with us and train with us. And so because I had the opportunity to do it, then I decided to do it like full force. This is not something you can go halfway. You have to go all the way and have plans. Uh, IG is one thing, but actually putting boots on the ground and doing the work that it takes to actually change that visual is a whole lot different because what's on the beach is not what happens in the corporate offices. It's really not. It's it, it's a whole new ball game. And if you don't know the if you don't know the two landscapes, you're doomed. And so how does your work seek to challenge that kind of gatekeeping? Well, since Black Girl Sir came out, it's just now like opening doors for a lot of Black women. There are so many groups now that have benefited from the work that we do here. And that's all we tried to do here. That's We didn't try to like, we don't want to stronghold the community. We don't say, okay, we're the gatekeepers of the community. We want you to go out and branch out. And so there's more here. There's more there. We got New York. Now we got Jamaica. We have Peru. We're trying to connect all the black people in, in yes. surfing, right? <laughs> we want to yes. know who, I don't care where you live. You can live in Southeast Asia. If you're black, I want to know about it. Like I need to know. And I'm curious about those type of things. It's not like something like, I would say I'm almost obsessed to find us all because I know that there has to be, you know, I just came to Africa and, and just being in Senegal, the babies are out there surfing at one year old. Like literally there's a five year old pushing a one year old, you know, in the water. And so that's why we decided to do what we did in, in the small community of Angor because there's so many kids and they start out so early. I want to get to the point where we don't, it's not, it's not an anomaly. And no other, I don't think any other race, nationality has to do it, but Black women have to be very careful how they walk into this scene. You can walk into this scene and, and, and instantaneously be over-sexualized and then disregard it as a non-entity. You're just there for a booty shot or or you're there, you know, I get labeled as a, as a the angry one, the rebel, right? Like, because I'm the one that's fighting against the system and they don't really care about other people's feelings. And I say that all the time. I'm like, I don't, I don't care about your feelings. I'm here to do a job. Like if you go to a job and you, you, as long as I've been in, and if I was a doctor, nobody would question my surgery skills if I'd been doing it for 18 years. But as a black woman, I get questioned every day and I've been doing this for 18 years. You see? I think it's important for anyone who's interacting with this episode is that there are so many ways that we prejudge. And especially as black folks, we bear the brunt of, you know, even you gave the example of doctors, like there's so many moments where I have friends who are working in the medical field and they're underestimated in their skill set and they're underestimated in their knowledge. And so many of our other guests have had, you know, similar stories of, of not being taken as seriously. But I think what's so valuable about the work that you do is really this commitment to changing the terrain. So there's so much to unpack there. When we come back, I want to ask you some questions about localism and how racism plays into that. But first, I want to take a quick break to ask you some questions from Hulu subscribers who have watched your segment on your attention, please. So our first question is from Tatiana in California 
who asks, do you practice yoga to help balance on the surfboard? Some of our camps do. The synagogue camps do not. Um, we do more Pilates. Um, but some of the camps do um, have yoga. The Nigeria camp, they practice all the time. They do. They even do beach adventures. They go off for the weekend and they do it. So it just depends on the location, who, whatever the fitness instructor. I think L.A. was doing it for a while. But yeah, we don't do it in Senegal. Our next question is also from California. It is from Kevin, who wants to know, should a new learner surfer start on a longboard or a shortboard? I'm, I'm biased on this because I learned on a shortboard, but I didn't have a choice. But you should learn on, on a longboard. If you have a question for any of the makers that we'll be talking to later this season, please leave us a voicemail at 504-475-4858 for a chance to have your question featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So I met Shama because Shama taught me how to surf. Um, oh, I was cool. out on like a Hurley trip and it was like a Tom Sachs surf club thing. And I took one of my homegirls and we were both just like two black girls out in the water and we're just like, what did we get into? But I've always wanted to learn. And um, even that day, there was a moment where we were at the Rockaways in New York and we were warned before we even touched the water that there would be animosity. Mm -hmm. And that was just such a, a wake-up call because we went out expecting to have this cute little time. You know, we were like with a group. We were like rolling deep, you know, and we were with a Rockaway surf instructor who has for generations been working with that water. But then there was also the understanding that there is big-time locals-only culture. And so I wonder if we could talk a bit about especially black space in the water. I, I'm just curious from your standpoint, especially in relationship to not only autonomy for those who are a part of Black Girl Surf or a part of these professional leagues, but there is such a, a territory kind of battle that's going on in surfing all the time too. Always. It's, all, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I, I speak about often. And, I, this is, and this is where I'm saying 18 years because you start out on the battle lines, right? And then you, go, you, you graduate. But the battle line is the aggression that happens in the water, right? Get, go into your car and your car having go home written on the side of it in wax, you know, and you're only 19. And you, this is a beach you've gone to your whole life, right? And then all of a sudden, this starts happening. You go to another city, and then it happens again where somebody calls you something in the water, and you're like, okay. Then this is a, this is just in the 80s, so we're coming back to 2018 or whatever, and I'm in Los Angeles. I'm, I have Haji, who came from, from Senegal in Santa Cruz. That's my home break. At every time I would take her somewhere, she would get aggressively harassed in the water. She doesn't speak English, so she doesn't know what they're saying, but she could feel it. She could feel the energy, right? And you have to explain to your athlete who just traveled like thousands of miles that racism where something that doesn't happen where she's from happens in the water where I live, right? So she's learning different things about, about her blackness as I'm learning about being more pro-black through through dealing with her in, in, in Africa. So she she's looking at it like, what is going on? And I said, this is just how it is. It it's it's disheartening, but for me. I remember the day where I said, this is the last day. 
I'm not going to put up with it. Somebody else say something, there's going to be a problem. Like, I'm going to speak out. I'm not going to let this happen. If somebody harasses you, right, and you know what's racially motivated, if you're on land, that's a hate crime. I don't know why there's separate laws for the water, right? The same thing is you getting punched. The same thing happened down in, 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 in Manhattan Beach just recently. Okay. Before we get too far into this, I just want to pause for a second to make it clear for our audience. So Manhattan Beach is the beach in Los Angeles County that was once a predominantly Black community but has since been gentrified. Earlier this year, an older white guy harassed two young Black surfers using racist slurs, and many people in the surf community have been coming out to both condemn this and to point out that it's not an isolated incident, but that it fits within a larger pattern of racism and localism within surfing communities across the nation. Okay, now back to Rhonda. It's taken lightly, right, by surfing America. Right? Hopefully they're going to wake up. This little thing that happened in Manhattan Beach is one. I've been talking about it seriously. It's been my point of order now for the last four years, especially when we got Haju into the United States, because that's when it just appeared. Like, it just rose from the ground. And I mean, it was coming from everywhere. It was women, it was men, it was POCs that were doing it. You know, like there's a thing called localism, which I think is stupid. And I'm going to tell you why. Because if I go to a public beach and I'm paying taxes at that beach, then I'm going to use that beach. When we're talking about ownership and we're talking about localism, it's also so important for us to understand that the land of Manhattan Beach, the people who were... (laughs) Right. Like, it was Black people there. And they were displaced. And so it's so wild as, as, you know, like a a real non-surfer to observe where it's like, well, let's just hold hold up just a a minute because you took the name, you took the land, and now, of course, there's this conflict that's happening. um, But we have to be realistic um, and understand the ways in which we are reenacting the tools of colonialism. Like, mm-hmm. we we just can't start the conversation with without that. And there is, of course, a way that I think that there has been a marginalization of surf communities, and I don't understate that. And then, of course, there's a lot to be said around climate, but it is also really valuable when we're talking about where we're talking about to talk about where we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Like, there's, you know, I keep telling people there's no, when it comes to this kind of things, there's no subject that should be left behind. And they say, oh, no, 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 leave that out of the conversation. No, all of these conversations kind of marry each other, just like when social, when we're talking about social justice and then environmental justice. Like, that's how the paddle out started. Right. And I've heard about an incident in Venice Beach where another surfer's actions in the water caused a Black surfer to fall off her board. He says it was an accident. And I know that she was someone you'd invited out to join Black Girls Surf. Can you tell us what happened? We were filming a film for Haju, and literally one of the people that we were with, the guy asked our camera crew who the people were in the water that they were filming, and they said black girl surf, and the guy comes down, literally comes down the, the pier, goes back into the water, and then ends up grabbing a leash. I mean, that leash pull was heard all around the world. It was like an international story, but it came out negative on our side because we spoke out about it. We knew I knew exactly what it was. I knew exactly what it was when it happened. And then, you know, they were like, you know, coming after black girls. So, oh, and I said it then. I said, assault is assault. Would you take somebody's helmet off when they're like 
doing construction? No, you wouldn't. So why would you pull somebody's safety leash and try to pull them off the board? Well, that's an attack. What are you talking about? And everybody's like going back and forth. Is that surfing while black? Is it, or did it just happen? I'm, listen, if they say black girl surf, and we the only ones in the water, and you go out and attack one of those black girls, this is an attack on black girls. And the leash that you're describing is the the attachment to the ankle that attaches you to your board, right? Exactly. And if you pull that, you're going to not only, and and the girl was heading towards the the pier, you know, the pylons underneath the pier, she was headed straight towards it. And he pulls the leash, the board comes from underneath her feet. She goes flying one way. And I looked down and I said, did he just pull you off the board? And she said, yeah. And I said, and I said then, I said it was surfing wild black, and I meant it, and I'm not kidding. I didn't pull back on it. White men, white women, everybody was attacking us left and right after that incident because it, w- it was what it was. So we have talked quite a deal about the work, but I also want to know about the love. Oh, my God. Tell me, tell me about when you hit the water. Like, take me there. It's a love fest. It, you know, even even while we were filming, and and I'm looking like we're we're on hold, and I'm looking down at the boat, and all you want to do is get in. There are days where I'm working, I, I'm working, 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 and I don't even touch the water. And they get on a boat the next day, and I I'm leaned over. You can ask anybody; they know exactly what's going on. I'll lean over the side of the boat and just put my hand in the water as the boat's going. I have to feel it. It's like you. It's it's hard to explain. Man, you get disconnected from the water. You just feel like you sad. You just sad. It's just a when can I go? When can I feel? When can I touch? When can I breathe? Once you hit that water, it's all over. Like it's done. It's a, it's it's a wrap. I'll stay out there. Haji will stay out there like four or five hours. She don't care. She <laughs> she she especially if she has a good wetsuit. She's out there the entire like she'll be out there all day. I like to just get in and just bobble sometimes just to be on top of my board, like just all by myself, you know, just it's a connection. For me, it's a different, she, she serves for performance. I serve for spirituality. So there's a difference. So I try not to be around them when they're surfing. I, I like to be by myself where I'm, or I'm connected to the water. I don't need to have a whole bunch of surfers around me when I surf because I'm around a whole bunch of surfers all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> like y'all are cute, but it's yeah, me and the yeah, water right now. <laughs> yeah. Like we, everybody does this for a different reason. And I, I think it's, it's, you know, when I'm out there, I'm just thinking about when I was a little girl, my dad just used to just, I mean, I'm not kidding. My dad just like basketball pitched me into the water. You know what I mean? Like he, he was like, you're going to get in that water and you're going to stay. But those, that's, my dad and I used to, sur- we used to swim together every single morning before I went to school. Like he was working out and I was just with my dad. You know, I was a swimmer anyway. So I was, and we had a pool in our backyard and that was our thing. So when I'm in the water, that's usually what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about how can I recenter myself and, and get back to, to be in Rhonda and not just coach row. I just bought me a surfboard. For the first time, this is one when I say about taking care of yourself and rewarding yourself, because this is a this is a very heavy job. And it takes me 18 years to be able to walk into a surf shop and say, I want that board. Yes, I'm so glad that you bought that board. Sometimes you have to just treat yourself, especially 
if you spend all your time looking after others. You better trace yourself. I, and I, I learned that. I just learned that. But then I remember that one time, and I think this was one of the, the biggest influences. My mother, when she got to a point where she was comfortable, she used to, you know, help. She was a lawyer, so she was helping veterans, and she was constantly helping, helping, helping. And one day she came home with a gray Cadillac. I'm never going to forget this. She came home with a gray Cadillac. She painted the house gray. She painted the driveway gray. Like, <laughs> she, she, when she finally took care of herself, even her pen that she was writing her checks with, that was great. I mean, she just came out with herself. And I think when I saw that board, that's what I was thinking, is that my mom was just finally like, I'm going to treat myself. And so it didn't matter how much it is. I'm going to go ahead and purchase this thing because I deserve it. Some of those things just simply have to be modeled. And the same that you were describing with your mom, because in the same way, you're, you're, you're modeling sacrifice. And, and our lives cannot be just sacrifice after sacrifice. It's just not fair. It's not fair to us. It's not fair to our ancestors. And it's surely not fair to those who come after us. Rhonda, thank you so much for today's incredible conversation. I can't wait to see you at the next Bri. <laughs> I love these Bri's. Listen, thank you for having me. Uh, for anybody listening, like, live your dreams. That's the only thing I have to say. Live your dreams. Don't stop. Never stop. Don't get deterred by anybody else. Stay forward. Stay on the right path, and you'll, you'll get exactly what you want in the end. I know because I just lived it. And thank you. Well, we are finally on the other side of a dark and cold and gloomy New York winter. I'm so ready to get back to the beach. And with that in mind, I'm so thankful for the work that Rhonda does, fighting to make the beaches safer for all of us. If you enjoyed this conversation, don't you worry. We've got so much more to come. We'll be talking to all of the makers from season two of Your Attention, Please, on this podcast. So if you haven't already, watch the show, now streaming on Hulu. The episodes are also available for free on Hulu's YouTube channel. If you have a question for any of the makers that we'll be talking to later this season, please leave us a voicemail at 504-475-4858 for a chance to have your question featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast. So be sure to subscribe, leave us a rating, write a review, forward it to your cousin. It'll help more people find this show. Episodes are available literally anywhere and everywhere that podcasts are found. And also right within the Hulu platform. Don't be afraid to find what you love, share it with the world and scream from the mountaintop Your attention, please. Your Attention, Please, the podcast is a production of Hulu and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, J.N. Barry, and Barry Finkel. Our lead producer is Sophia Steinert-Evoy, And our associate producer is Brianna Garrett. The Your Attention Please theme song is composed by Teddy Walton. Our show is engineered by Davey Sumner. And of course, I'm your host, Kimberly Drew. You can find me on social media 
at at Museum Miami. That's all for this week, but we'll be back next Tuesday with more Black excellence. 